HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and today we're talking about food biographies. Not a person biography, but a food biography of a city. And of course, cities, all big cities, uh, certainly around the con- this country and in other countries around the world, have a special story about their own food and they have their specialty dishes. But it seems to me, maybe I'm biased, but no one has quite the story that New York has. Absolutely true. And today I have with me, you hear this booming voice, I have Andrew Smith with me today to talk about New York City food. Andy has just published a book called New York City, A Food Biography. I didn't make that up. That was okay. It's already made up. And Andy has been teaching food studies courses at the New School University since 95, and he's the author and or editor of over 25 books to date. Uh, Are we clicking off a couple more and still counting? (laughs) What's today? (laughs) Right, okay. And some of those are, they're fabulous. Um, They're all sort of biographies in a way of a food or a culinary historical dining experience. And this one, of course, is, um, is near and dear to my heart, being New York City food. But Certainly, it resonates with cities around the country as they started to develop and grow. But yeah, this is this is one book of, of a series of food biographies of others that he's and, and so this is and Ken Albal is the he's the Ken editor Albala of this the, series is a general editor. The San Francisco one has been published. Oh, it has been. been. New Orleans has been published, and there are several more under contracts. So. New Orleans, oh, that's that it, should be yeah, very it's, interesting. it's a fascinating idea. Yeah, and and as I said, every every city's got their own little story to tell, and certainly their food specialty items. Um, uh, this is uh, New York. This is very fascinating to me because there are things that just surprised me, took me, took me totally by surprise. But you tell me about what 
in particular makes well let's talk about new york's food what what makes new york's food so special we'd have to go back and talk about what are the specialties of new york now you start at the very beginning the prehistory that, and that's one of the things that really fascinated me I, I spent a great deal more time and space on the early prehistory of new york city simply because the geography of the city is extremely important it's location 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 is the answer and part of it is um, the new york city has a deep water port and for early uh, New Amsterdam and, and early colonial New York City and for early New York City um, in, in, um, in non-colonial times, it, the deep water port meant that you could bring huge sailing ships right up to Manhattan. You could put a dock right there and do it. There's no other port on the East Coast that is a deep water port. So consequently, New York City ends up as the trading capital of early America. And then the completion of the Erie Canal. Mm. As soon as the Erie Canal is completed in 1825, you have massive amounts of grain that that some many lots of it had been coming in through the Hudson anyway, but now coming in first from upstate New York and then from the Midwest. And not only is food coming here, you also have money coming here. And once you've got money and you've got a lot of food then you've got cuisine That's and right. uh and to me the, those are some of the things that i i knew before i started writing the book but i was really surprised at how important geography was how important climate was mm-hmm. of course the railway system then was developed and who who started it was right here in new york with the big money and, you know. and, and railroads in part went along the canal routes and so and, right. and, and and so you've got you've got this whole transportation system from uh shipping to canals to railroads that uh, makes a huge difference in early history. Well, I think a lot of our listeners probably are not aware of some of the early history of New York's food scene and not knowing that New York was vastly underwater for a large period of time. We won't go back that far. I don't think we have to go back to the Ice Age. But but it wasn't even underwater. I mean, it was under ice. And, and, and the ocean itself was two or 300 miles out to the east. That doesn't surprise you. It shocked me. I, I just hadn't expected that. And the fact that New York City was the end of the, of the terminal rain for the glacier that came down. And virtually all of Staten Island and Long Island are the remains of um, of debris that was pushed down from what's today New England. <laughs> so so those are some of the things that surprised me. So that, uh, that the, when the shift of the plates of the land plates finally took place. But we well, were, no, so the land plates didn't move. It was the rising and falling of the ocean due to the fact that there was so much water on land, not, not just in North America, but also in Europe. So you, had, you just had uh, shifts and changes of ocean and climate. And what we were left with, New York, um, was a great wealth of seafood. It, it was an incredible oasis for not only seafood, but for birds. Uh, birds I mean, there were tens of thousands of uh, different types of birds that came through here, and some of them um, moved in the billions of categories, like the passenger pigeon and the, their claims that one that flew overhead. You, you couldn't see the sun. I'm not sure how true those were, huh. but, but there were a lot of birds that came through here. And then, of course, the migratory fish and then the deer and buffalo were here uh, which uh, I don't know if they were actually in what is today New York City but they were very close by and I, I always thought of the buffalo as Plains Indians and I didn't really realize that they were here. Yeah. So food sources were plentiful. 
food sources were plentiful, and for the uh, first the paleo Indians hunting uh, woolly mammoths, um, and for the, uh, the the Lape Indians that were here, I mean, it was you didn't really have to work that hard. The, the food was easily accessible throughout the year. Well, not, walking but, on oysters, right? <laughs> and, and, well, the oyster story to me also, I was aware. Of, um, for a variety of reasons, but the estimates vary between 20 to 50 percent of the world's oysters were here in the New York City, um, either the bay or or the um, the area uh, that's around around the city, and I, I find that incredible. And of course, they were by far uh, one of the most important foods of earlier New York, all the way up until uh, the end of the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, you can see you see a lot of um, old photographs and drawings, line drawings of of vendors on the corner selling with a big barrel of, of oysters. You, you didn't even need a ship. All you needed was a rake uh, yeah. and, and, and just go into I mean what you think of now is there's there's land and then there's water but historically there would have been a huge wetland in which you could go into. You could just rake up and get the... And so if you were hungry you could just go out and get some oysters. And if you need a little money, not a problem. you just go and rake a little more up. Get a and barrel go, and, and sell them, right? And you'd sell them. And, uh, and those stories are great but also what's exciting to me about the oyster story is it was consumed by by the poor as well as by the wealthy and in the same place at the same time and mm. that was one of the few things that really brought all classes of New York City together at the same time it's interesting that's right you, they're all eating the same food from the same cart from the same vendor interesting uh, what you know what surprised me was caviar that New York was a large producer of caviar the largest a supplier of caviar in the late no, they didn't century. produce it right the supplier uh, it, but there was not not a lot of demand for it in New York City but it was exported but the sturgeon uh, I mean the massive number of sturgeon that went up and down um, the Hudson River was j- uh, also another incredible you know people made the you could walk across the Hudson River during the time that they were spawning blah 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 blah, blah. Mm-hmm. not true but but it's a nice story but but the fact is that the sturgeon were were plentiful here as were shad. I mean, you went down the list, and were mammals. The whales came into the bay, and they do occasionally now, but historically they would have been here on a regular basis. And uh, you know, all other uh, sea life that you could think of were, was available in the area. Hmm, interesting. What, what dish or types of food um, really caught the attention, your attention as you were writing this? When we're talking, let's say... Um, uh, early 19th century. Early, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't a lot uh, in early 19th century. M- mid-19th century is when immigrants come in, and, so then, and, and, then, and then New York City becomes a really exciting place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's this mix. And it's not just the ethnic um, or um, um, national foods that people bring in. It's the fact that most Americans didn't like the ethnic or national foods that immigrants brought in, and so the immigrants had to change them <laughs> so, and change the types of foods that they had in order to uh, attract mainstream New Yorkers and or or New Yorkers from other ethnic groups. And so you end up with these crossovers that 
were based on tradition, culinary traditions from the old country, uh, but but had something very different and something unique that uh, I think is one of the more important things about New York City. And to me, that's one of the things that continue 150 years later is still a very important part of New York City. That's right. Of course, uh, now we're more open to embracing those cuisines as soon as well, they Today we look forward, them. oh, right. man, Korean tacos <laughs> on the street. Let's go for it. Right, uh, you know, right. So this it's this crossover of which in, in the countries themselves, uh, the chefs and, and cooks would never have had contact with, with different with different groups. And so in one sense, it's not just the ethnic foods that are here. It is the combination of foods. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about that immigration period. Um, surprising, I think, to many people would be to know who was the first and largest group of immigrants. Oh, from the beginning, there were immigrants here. And I, if you ask me, what was I surprised at? When uh, England took over New Amsterdam in 1664, more than half of the colony weren't Dutch. Uh, and many of <laughs> They the were Dutch, not Dutch. They were yeah. not Dutch. They were English. They, there was an Italian here. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you just don't... I didn't think of those things. I always thought, well, this is Dutch, and we know exactly what the Dutch ate. And the answer is we don't know what they ate. Uh, but um, there was a huge diversity of people here, even from the beginning. And so you had immigration and immigrants coming in during that period. But the first massive wave begins in the 1830s, and it's Germans. Uh, and Germans will continue to come for the next um, 100, almost 100 years. And so you have this massive number of Germans, and the German influence today, where where is it, Peter? Peter Luger's, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's the, there, there are some German restaurants here, but 100 years ago, German restaurants would have been all over the place. And delicatessens, of course, are a German retail operation. Uh, that then shift over time uh, into the delis that we know and love today, the Jewish delis or the Korean delis that right, they have. Yeah. So, But they're well, very, very different than what originally uh, the delicatessen was. And the beer halls. I mean, you, I think you have a picture in the book. I know I, I, that there was uh, um, William Grimes did a wonderful book, and he has a, a large chapter about the, of course, the first restaurants and the German beer halls. Humongous. Yes, there were you know, many floors with bands and and uh, bowling alleys and uh, pool tables and uh, actual gardens that uh, indoor gardens uh, in in New York City that you could go and drink beer. You take your family to. I mean, it wasn't something like saloons at the time uh, or bars that that were basically all male. Uh, but you could take a family to um, a, a nice German. Um, uh, uh, you know, beer garden, beer garden, yeah. and and have a great time. And it was you'd spend a day there, and you'd be entertained, and um, and you would have a good time. And mm. so, that's so different than the uh, current bar scene of New yeah. York City. Although we are seeing a few beer gardens oh, pop up again. Them, yeah. Yes, yes, and um, I know one in particular, and they even have events for families and mothers and children in the afternoons. I mean, they're really trying to become this this you know fam- once again a, a family oriented business so it all goes back again right <laughs> on the beer side to it new york of course had breweries to begin with but the breweries didn't do well in manhattan in particular because of the water i mean there was lots of problems with water so it isn't until the croton aqueduct uh, is completed in the 1840s that you begin to have a huge supply of fresh water that you could have breweries and so the number of breweries in new york city were incredible of course, the breweries disappear during uh, Prohibition, and uh, they, while they come back after Prohibition, they they lose market share to breweries in the Midwest. Hmm. Uh, but today, there are ten 
breweries, working breweries in New York City. And that's a great story. It's mm-hmm. not just the past. It's also uh, the, the new things that are going on. There are more than a thousand food startups in New York City today. And, and that's an incredible story. That is an incredible story. Uh, and uh, a lot of them are little mom and, sh- mom and pop shops that are opening up. Others are um, in buildings together with other uh, startups. And uh, it, it's, to me, a very exciting food scene. Not just the restaurants, which everybody talks about, but it's also the production of food that's uh, continuing in New York City in new ways. Well, talking about little startups, food startups, what were some of those that really made waves? Um, in the early days of New York, that really put put something on the map as being New York. Sugar. Do you do you think of New York City as being the sugar capital um, of uh, at least of the United States? Um, I mean, for those of us that know Williamsburg, yes, of course. Yeah, other than we going all, by and seeing that domino we sign, we all know that yeah. domino <laughs> sign. But but uh, from about the 1830s on, New York City became uh, the major sugar refinery, uh, not not just of north but of the of the entire country and um, by the late 19th century it controlled something like 80 percent of the total refined sugar in the united states you don't think of new york as a sugar refinery no no definitely uh, not place and 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 the domino's factory only closed in 2004 so although obviously um it the the share of the market dwindled but but it was still there until until very recently well again the shipping and bringing the raw product in at you know that's that helped to be as you yeah, say, histor- geography histor- yeah. geography historically it made a lot of sense because what you didn't want to do with a sailing ship is produce your end product your refined sugar in Jamaica and then move on a sailing ship with lots of humidity and water um, to another place because you have to refine it anyway so they would do a preliminary uh, refinery refining in in the place where the sugar cane was grown and then it would be imported to cities whether it be New York City or, or London or uh, a new, uh, or Amsterdam, or in, any one of the other cities, and then you do your refining there, and that's what that's what happened for, um, you know, for almost four hundred years. Well, in New York, there was New York had a lot of firsts, of course, and then and those firsts traveled across the country. But let's talk about some of the firsts, and as I said once again, a, a food that that put itself on the map and became kind of a New York food, and I'm thinking of something like a hot dog. Well, uh, hot dogs are a fascinating story. Again, uh, it's the street vendor story, which again, I had general knowledge on, but that that was one of the things that really surprised me a great deal, is how street vendors affected not only food in New York City, but food around uh, the United States. And the hot dog is a good example. Uh, I could find no other uh, previous uh, reference to anybody in in the United States getting a sausage and putting a bun around it and, and eating it, and at least from a popularization standpoint, that clearly happens in Coney Island, and it is Coney Island hot dog um, that is popularized, and that that will begin uh, hot dogs in America. So uh, it's a street vendor that starts it off, and you can't sell a sausage if you're a street vendor. How do you hold it? Yeah, <laughs> so they put a bun around the outside. Okay, let's do that. Um, so um, that's that to me was one of the fascinating stories. Yeah, is there um, anything that 
people would be surprised at knowing that it started in New York. I'm trying. I, I mean, I don't. Know. Snapple. Did you realize Snapple, Snapple starts well, in yeah, Brooklyn? Well, yeah, because I knew who the boy, I knew who the guys were. But uh, well, sorry. there there were large numbers of uh, companies that were based here at some point and then moved on. Uh, Pepsi Cola was based here. Mm-hmm. No, everyone, no one thinks of Pepsi Cola, but um, you know, there's a there's a plant um, um, in in New York City from Pepsi Cola, and it was the headquarters for a long period of time. And and you start looking at a lot of the other products. Nabisco is the the great story. Oreo cookies. Mm-hmm. We're talking real New York. And then the nobody real... thinks of Oreo cookies as a New York. Product. No, they. No. I mean, they they lose the true heritage and history as soon no. as they move production elsewhere. That's it. But Chelsea Market was uh, the headquarters for Nabisco. And of course, for those of us uh, who love New York food, Malamars. Malamars. How yeah. how can you how can you not have a Malamar? And and that's the same product that came out of uh, Nabisco, uh, as did Animal Crackers. Remember Animal yeah. Crackers? Yeah, now see, that that was the other thing I was surprised at, that Animal Crackers were a New York um, product. Well, well, I mean, an, but they're actually, I, di- I didn't go through the whole history on it, okay, but, but technically they're English, and they come over to America, and the Americans <laughs> yes. recreate the idea, but, but the idea is the Animal Crackers that we know and love with the little box Barnum that we all Bailey, had with Barnum you know, and Bailey right. were, yeah. were here. Yeah. Yeah. What about black and white cookies? I didn't see them. What, what, what do you know anything about I don't. I, I have. They're, in, they're mentioned in here. I don't. I couldn't figure out who where they started, but obviously something that is a, a tradition uh, for New York City, and and one of which is very popular. So, uh, um, and, yeah. and, and and you know there there were a lot of other products that came out and then moved on. Uh, you know for a variety of reasons. All right. Um, and of course, you know, talking about immigration, we know that um, because of the great influx of of different ethnic. Um, people and foods that we then have bagels and yes. cream cheese and lox and uh, you know and smoked pastrami. fish and pastrami. Yeah, right. And New York, of course, Montreal would argue that you know between bagels and pastrami, they're they're kings and we're second. They but. <laughs> may be they may be kings, but uh, and from an historical standpoint, they started here. We had it first. At, well, okay. the best historical evidence currently uncovered, and now who knows those people in Montreal, they may come up with something. <laughs> but uh, no, New York really is the the beginning of what we think of as as um, bagels. Um, yes, there are traditions that come in from Eastern Europe and come in here, but the bagel we know and love today is is really uh, an adaptation of of those traditions, and right. and it's something that becomes popular throughout America. And I've never seen Bialis outside of New York City. I'm sure they're there, but. Um, that's it. And when I have a bagel in another city, I'm sorry to say it's embarrassing. It's, yeah. it's an embarrassment. Yeah. And can you? And, and what date do you pinpoint that at? Anything? Ba- bagels are uh, clearly late 19th century, um, 1860s, 1870s, and, and as are pretzels, by the way. And there's this big argument now with pretzels with Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. That's whether, right. Whether there, there's now this Philadelphia pretzel shop in in Brooklyn, I just want you to know. I can't Uh-oh. tell the difference between <laughs> there. Then they will they will not hand out the recipe, um, but I can't tell the difference between that and a New York pretzel. But but that's an interesting. Uh, fair argument. Yeah. Um, there are some other firsts that we're going to talk about too, and we'll do that as soon as we come back from a short break. I didn't mean to.
You're listening to Something to Believe in by Four Lincolns on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige, sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past. I'm talking with Andy Smith about his new book, New York City, A Food Biography. And Andy, we talked about different foods that got their start here in New York on the streets mostly, but um, there was really no place, I mean, boarding houses came, there there are no such thing as restaurants. People can listen to one of my past shows on restaurants and the advent of restaurants, but um, restaurants were, were non-existent. Um, there were boarding houses, places to go and eat if you had to travel and stay. But there were some enterprising brothers who started something. Tell me about that. Delmonico's, right? Well, there are uh, there are dining rooms in hotels prior right. to that time, and so it gets a little confusing because what's dining? What's the difference between dining? What's room a restaurant? And restaurant? Yeah. What's dining? And right. Delmonico's creates the first independent restaurant, which is the model that all other restaurants, first in New York City and then around the country, will follow. And it's it's a uh, place where you can go and get a menu. You can order from that menu. You don't get just one thing that the restaurant serves at a particular time. Uh, and then you uh, pay one one bill at the end of the meal. So so at least that's the basic definition of what a restaurant Which is. Which I think for a lot of listeners, it will strike them as coming relatively late. Yes. 1830s is when this idea will begin in America. Now, we will start in France before that, mm-hmm. and it will start in other countries. But in, in the United States, Delmonico's uh, from the 1830s is the first reference that we can have that meets these criteria. So there. And what's the shock to me is there are, they are Swiss of Italian heritage, <laughs> one of whom is a ship captain. <laughs> How that happened, no one knows. Uh, who simply is engaged in trade between uh, the Caribbean and New York City, uh, decides New York City is the exciting place. And and this, again, is after the Erie Canal is constructed. He says, i got to go to New York. That's the place to be. And so at first he opens up a wine shop, and that doesn't do very well. He sells it, goes back, picks up his brother, then comes to New York City, and they open up a small cafe. And um, that is the beginning of a restaurant empire that will go from um, 1826 uh, all the way to 1923, almost 100 years. And it will provide the model for restaurants around 
around the United States. And, and that, to me, was a really exciting story. People have told that well, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and the documentation is there is very, very, uh, very good. Uh, and so... Um, at Demonico's, there is still a Dom- Demonico's downtown. Yes, it has York, no, no, no connection with the original right. one, except the fact that they took the same location for the Demonic restaurant. And they've done the best they can to re, uh, reconstruct the, uh, remodel the inside of it the way it was when it was a Demonico's restaurant. So it is... Uh, a very nice place to go. Plush, yeah. old school. It's plush, kind old of school. They yeah. they claim their menu is associated with the uh, types of foods that would have been served in Demonicos, and uh, so it's, it's it's well worth going to. And that's um, that's something that at least you can see part of New York City past. Well, then New York got very industrial, and people just didn't have the time to sit down and enjoy a leisurely meal, so they had an alternative way to dine. All sorts of alternatives. You, you had lunch rooms and and cafeteria and uh, the descriptions of uh, Europeans in particular watching this saying people would come in, you would sit at a table with 10 other people, you would order two seconds later, the food would arrive, you would consume your food, and five minutes later, you're gone. And not even necessarily talk to one another. No, you wouldn't talk with them. And and so this shocked upper-class Europeans who came here and took a look at it. But uh, to me, the real exciting uh, end result of all this is the automat. And um, I've always been in love with automats and I was uh, what got me interested in New York City food to begin with was the closing of the last automat in New York City in 1991 and so uh, to me uh, you know it was seedy and I understand why it was closed but that was part of the culinary heritage of New York City and it was lost and um, I felt badly about that uh, certainly, there are other automats around the rest of the country, but it—I um, don't know if they still well, exist now, or not. Or now, but then it was a, it was a first. It now, was now, what's the question of an automat? I mean, it's yeah. uh, vending machines are now automats That's in, right. in some That's ways right. because they have all sorts of—not just the candy and snack food anymore, but they actually have hot food, believe it or not, and they have all sorts of diverse types of foods. And so, in some ways, the the, the large vending machines meet some of the needs that people have for quick service and just put money in and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, but the, uh, you know, the automats, um, uh, I just love the idea and putting a coin in and then getting a piece of pie out and not, not having to worry about a waitress and not having to worry about a tip. And I mean, not have, and you could eat it. And then, I mean, you well, and you can see your selection. You, you make your see decision your selection <laughs> before you have to, you know, as, as opposed to looking at a menu and trying to decide, well, do I want this? Well, you know, then when it comes, Ooh, this isn't what I thought it would be. And, uh, but mm. so at least those were some of the advantages. And it stayed it. around and it became almost like a museum. People would come and visit it. It did. <laughs> and, uh, when New York public library had a lunch hour e- exhibition, they had a, uh, a part of an automat in there. No food inside. I thought that was disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but they tried. And there was an automat on the Lower East Side uh, that tried to survive for, it made it for a few years. Hmm. Uh, um, but then uh, it, it, it folded when the recession came. So, hmm. Well, um, you talk about food in New York and some of the things that I was wondering, what, you know, what was what really changed the nature of the food that we eat and what the food that was served and certainly the you know we have railway and, and shipping and the you canals. have transportation coming in and so uh, any goods that you want you can get in New York City um, if you if you want spices not a problem they'll they'll be in there and they they can be fresh by the way not mm-hmm. not just the bottled stuff that's been around for years strawberries year round if you want strawberries <laughs> you can get them yeah for better or worse I mean you right. can get virtually any 
any uh, produce that you want here, um, and uh, there are air shipments coming in on a regular basis. If you <laughs> if you uh, don't want to buy locally and you want to buy some product that's from some other place, you can get it. And of course, now the wines that are available in New York City. I mean, you can get almost anything here. So, well, I think that one something that um, that whether you know the the shipping of all this fresh produce or not spawned all this, but. Um, was the advent of supermarkets. I mean, the suburban sprawl was one thing, but supermarkets. And and King Cullen, believe it or not, is at least the Smithsonian recognized it as the first supermarket. Uh, now, there were larger restaurants that actually existed in California, but they weren't called supermarkets. supermarkets and so right. this one was, and this popular, it popularized the idea. And what surprised me, this opens up in Queens in, um, you know, in 19... 19- 1930. Yeah. And uh, within a period of five years, there are more than a thousand supermarkets in America. Then within 10 years, there are, there are 7,000 uh, supermarkets. I mean, the idea spread so quickly. And the, um, I mean, the idea was historically, if you were going to shop, you'd have to shop daily and pick up your food and then right, bring go it to the market, market fresh markets. And, and the yeah. idea of being a supermarket was you could drive your car, there would be a parking lot there, you could, you could buy the produce and foods that you needed for a week or, or more. And so you would shop less regularly and it would be more efficient. And because it was large and because they had a lot of products there, the prices were cheaper. And a large number of mom and pop shops went out of business. Um, so that yeah. was. Well, that it met the needs of urban, as I said, of suburban sprawl. And uh, actually, for reference, I, there was a, an interesting show. I had an interesting guest, Tracy Deutsch, did a show number one forty four. If you want to listen, and uh, it, it was supermar- the development of supermarkets, marketing, and all the fancy displays were um, billed as a housewife's paradise. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we could call it a housewife's paradise rather than a supermarket. But that anyway, the first was in New York, and but, that was... Right. Big. But, but I mean, the scene has changed a lot, uh, and uh, supermarkets have changed a lot, too. And so Whole Foods, which is an incredible um, resource for, for fresh and, and, uh, and, and really good food that's brought in on a, on a very frequent basis, and now the attempt to move into some of the food deserts in New York City, I think, I think there's a lot of really good things that are going on. So there are you have a, a a section in the book where you name specific New York dishes. Um, New York dishes such as Manhattan clam chowder. Yeah, well, there's at least dishes named after or thought to be uh, New York based. Right. Yes, and, like and the Manhattan itself, the beverage is. But there's also a Queens cocktail, and there's a Bronx cocktail. I just want you to know the Waldorf all, salad. All, <laughs> all of the um, boroughs of New York City get some visibility. They're all there. Uh, they're all they're there. All there. Uh, and. Uh, what I wanted to do was, was at the end here, fast forward to present day. Food, how did we get to the point where we are such a food-obsessed nation? I mean, New York has been for a long time, so much so that there are whole cookbooks written devoted to New York food. Dozens, as you mentioned there, dozens, dozens. Yeah. yeah, and and, and if you and, and if you start looking at New York City food writers, 
who write cookbooks, then you're talking thousands. Uh, yeah. So um, it's not it's not just about New York City, but uh, obviously New York. What is, did you say? Dozens just about New York food. It's it's uh, in in you know, from the uh, well. Certainly, many other cities have large numbers of immigrants coming in. New York City, by far, uh, has has the most and the largest numbers. I mean, there's 190 language groups spoken in. New York City public schools, and virtually all of them have, have restaurants or, or food available that that will tap into them. And th- that diversity just doesn't exist in many other. Not, it, certainly, there are lots of diversity in other cities, but not not like it is here in New York. Yeah. And there's money here, and that's the other thing you need money. And then because you've got money, you've got skilled chefs coming in from all over the world. Uh, uh, from Asia or from Europe uh, or from Latin America and now from Africa. So you've got a real group of professionals that are coming in that are that are creating new things. And uh, it's that it's that excitement I think that's uh, one of the things that interested so so many of us, including myself. Yeah. And it has spread across the country. And there and and I, for one, am very happy that that everyone is so enthusiastic about food, wanting to know where it comes from and and embracing new types of cooking. Um, I'm but, hungry. Where yeah, are we going to eat? Yeah, me too. But I, am, but I am so happy to have this book, New York City, A Food Biography, because it really does chart what went on, what was put on the map in terms of what happened in New York. And it's amazing how much started here. Go on. Um, two, two quick things. The first is that uh, this, this was only a small portion of the material that I had. It's only 70,000 words, and I actually had about 1,000 pages of notes for it. And so I'm delighted to report that um, Oxford University Press has, um, has just contracted out uh, with myself as editor-in-chief um, and Kathy Kaufman as associate editor for a, a trade publication encyclopedia-like work called Savoring Gotham. So so we will be food able, of New York City will be in encyclopedic and, form and beverages and we're and we're looking for authors and we're looking for writers so um, so that will be an open thing we'll be working on over the next couple of sure, years. Well, I certainly look forward to that and participating in it as well. And we yes. have <laughs> and we have our um, uh, the the food technology conference. That's, that's what I wanted to bring up next. Um, April third through the fifth. There is a the food conference. The food conference. Um, tell us a little bit about the the subject matter of this one. We we decided that technology is so important in food, and so few of us really understand it and um, are afraid of it, or, and are afraid <laughs> of it, and um, and and the fears and 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 the and the efficiency of um, of technology seem to us to be very important. And so we're dealing with a number of very tough issues, including we've got a really good panel on genet- genetically modified food and. We've got panels on historical uh, cooking and on how um, you know knives were used. I mean, this is just a whole a collection of people. We have, believe it or not, people flying in from Australia. We've uh, we've got people flying in from Europe, all coming in to talk about technology and food. And it's right here in New York City at the Roger Smith Hotel on April third through fifth. And if you want to find out more about the food conference, you can go online to thefoodconference.com. Dot com. There you have it. Andy, always a pleasure to have you on the show and uh, if people want to know more about New York City food if they want to see if their favorite food is in the book I encourage you to pick up a copy of it and I look forward to the next publication thanks for listening this has been A Taste of the Past and I'm your host Linda Palaccio thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website 
or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.